Amen. Good morning. So Matt showed me that video on Friday. I had two thoughts. I'm like, how are we going to transition from that to my message? But that was awesome. So that worked. And the other thought was that Brody has got to be the perfect guy for this job. Um, I mean, you can just feel the extroversion in him, right? And it's awesome. And as a moderate introvert, I thought, man, if they said, Tom Hendricks, come on, I'd have run out the back of the building. That would have been it. There's no, if I did a split, it's because I'm running so fast to get out. So so I'm excited about that. I think that's really a great initiative, and I'm really pleased and thankful for the leadership God's bringing to it. Well, as Matt said earlier, look, uh, last Sunday we started a study of the book of Ephesians. We are calling it One Body, One Mission. And last week, if you were with us, you know that we started with a question. And the question was, who or what do you praise God for? Now, why did we start with that? Because it's where Paul starts. In the first 14 verses of his letter to the Ephesians, he is crying out in praise, man. He's going, praise God, bless be God, praise God, bless be God. And he's coming to us and he's going, look, I don't know who you think that you are. I don't know who you assume that you are. I don't know who you feel like you are. I don't know who maybe some really significant people in your life have told you that you are. But I'm going to tell you who you are. And when it lays hold of you, your identity in Jesus, it's going to make you want to bless God. It's going to make you want to praise him. He said, here's the first thing you need to know. You need to know that you are chosen, and you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Think about that for a minute. Like long, long before, like in eternity past, long before you ever entered onto the scene, God chose you, if you're a Christian or if you become one, to be the object of his eternal love and affection. It's a remarkable thought. It means that you had nothing whatsoever to do with it. Like zero, nada, nothing. Like you didn't show up on the scene and prove yourself to be really competent, and then God went, oh, you look like a good team member, you know. I'll choose you. Or you didn't pull, show up on the scene and prove yourself to be really, you know, incompetent, and God went, oh, man, I don't want that. If you have faith in Jesus, if you come to faith in Jesus... It's because before eternity passed, God said, that's my son, that's my daughter, which is actually the next point. Paul said, you're chosen, and if that's not enough to like, you know, make you want to bring Ryan and the worship team back up, okay, well then you're also adopted. Like he didn't just pick you for a team, he picked you for his family. He picked you for relationship with him, intimate relationship with him. And in him you have this fiercely loyal, loving Heavenly Father who is always faithful and whose faithfulness to you is not based on your performance which is wonderful. There's great relief in that. There's great joy in that. There's praise in that. Paul's like, let me tell you what to praise him for. You're chosen. You're adopted. You know what else? You're redeemed. What does that mean? It means that you're purchased. You've been bought and paid for. Bought and paid for with what? What's the price exactly? Because that establishes our value, and that's something that we all deal with and we're insecure about as human beings. It's like, do I have value? Okay, how valuable am I? God's like, though you are finite, you are infinitely valuable. I gave my son so that I might have you. Chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven. Think about that one for a minute. It's a remarkable thought. I mean, what would you give to hear God say, you know what, all of your failures in the past, all of the embarrassing things, all of your failures in the present, hey, you know what, let's just go future. Like, also in the future, the whole of your life, all of it, slate wiped clean, forgiven, made new, made pure, 
Look, that is the offer of the gospel to you. That's what Jesus has come to do for you. That's what God is saying to you if you have faith in Christ or if you receive Christ. It's amazing. And then what else? Inheritance. He's like, guys, look, if you are wondering why you should be so moved in here that you praise God out here, not just with your mouth, but by the way that you live, like with the whole of your life, if you're looking for a reason, we got chosen, we got adopted, we've got redeemed, we have forgiven, and you have an eternal inheritance that is heaven that nothing and no one can ever take from you. He came to us and he talked to us about his identity. So question last week was who or what do we praise God for? The question for this week as we continue the conversation with Paul is, all right, well, who or what do we ask God for? And the reason that I say that is because the primary language of people who have that identity that I just described that is ours through faith in Jesus, that primary language is prayer. But just like any other language, you know, prayer needs to be learned. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to model it for us, and in the modeling, he's going to go, here's the answer to the question. Here's what you should ask him for. So beginning in verse 15 of chapter 1, he says this. He says, for this reason, and then he gives us the reason. He says, because I, I, Paul, who spent two years of my life planting you, this church, in the city of Ephesus, I, Paul, who had to flee from the city of Ephesus for my life because, frankly, all of your conversions were affecting the idolatry of the city and some of the industry of the city, and the whole city rose up against me to put me to death, and so I fled for my life. I, Paul, who maybe haven't heard anything about you guys, how you're doing, what your faith is like, how you've progressed, if you've progressed, if you've regressed, for years, okay, I, Paul have now gotten a report, and I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And as a result, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And in a second now, he's going to tell us what he prays for them, and therefore, by implication, what we should pray for us and for our families, for the people we work with, for each other, for the people we go to school with, for the people in this city, for the people in our county, for the people in this region. And here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, I pray for your marriages. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, I pray for you as parents and I pray for your kids. He doesn't say, well, you know what? I know business is a big deal. I'm praying for your finances. And I know that some of you are experiencing financial difficulty and you've got a lot of pressure on you at work and I'm going to pray for that. He doesn't even say, I'm praying for your health, even though there's undoubtedly people in this church who are sick and even dying. And it's not that those things don't matter. It's not that those things aren't a matter of prayer. It's not that those things are not, you know, uniquely important to Paul. He teaches about those things. It's just that they're here, and what he asks God for is up here. He says, remembering you in my prayers, and then here's the prayer. That the Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. What is he talking about? Well, I think the answer to that is found in what wisdom does and what revelation does, and for that matter, what light does, having the eyes of your heart and light end. What do those things do? They help you see things. They reveal things. They bring sight. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, look, all of those other things, all the things that you and I pray for all of the time, they consume our prayer life, if we're honest. And usually it's from anxiety. All right, all of those things are important. Those things are significant. You can pray about those things. But let me tell you what you really need. 
You need for God to give you and everyone else spiritual sight. Ask God for spiritual sight is what he's saying. And the first thing that Paul wants us to see with the eyes of our hearts is the hope to which he has called us, and we know that, because he says, guys, I'm praying that God enlightens the eyes of your heart, okay, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And what is hope? It's very telling. Hope is the joyful expectation that the future will be better than the past, that tomorrow will be better than today. And I'm just going to say it. When we look at the future or even tomorrow, oftentimes with the eyes of our head, it doesn't look better. Does it? I mean, sometimes it does. You're heading out on vacation. You're like, tomorrow's going to be better than today. You know, Got it, but that's short-lived. I mean, really. And you look at the trajectory of your life. I'm in this trajectory. You know, you see your grandparents died. Check. You know, you see your parents die. We're starting to check that box. You realize you're up next. And at some point in life, you're looking back in life and going, all of my glory days are back there. Well, only if you look at your life with the eyes of your head. You look at life with the eyes of faith with the eyes that look through the lens of who God is and who you are to Him and of all the possibilities of God and of the future of God, chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, inheritance, you realize, no, no, wait a minute, all of my glory days are actually ahead. And every day, no matter how difficult it is and no matter what it looks like with my two eyes of my head, is a good day because it brings me closer to those days. It reorients everything. You see things differently with these two sets of eyes. I'll give you another example. So I'm going to give you the example of my father-in-law, Beth's dad. Wonderful, wonderful guy. I was blessed with a really, really great father-in-law. He accepted me in, loved me as his own, had a great relationship together. He's a brilliant, or was, a brilliant, brilliant guy. He was a medical doctor. You hear about people who have photographic memories. He actually had a photographic memory. So we knew, like one of those incredibly rare people, uh, you guys, you know, I, you know, we read like John Grisham novels. He read Stephen Hawking for fun, and I'm not kidding. Like this guy studied physics books, and he would notate things, and he would look at stuff up on the Internet and research it, and he'd read all the footnotes and the endnotes and like really just dive into all of this stuff. It's remarkable, and he loved it. He just was an insatiable learner and a prodigious intellect, but he was not ever a man of faith. He was raised by a woman of faith, and he was surrounded by people in his family and at work and whatever who were people of faith, but it's just not something he was ever interested in. And, you know, he wasn't shy about letting us know that. Like, I mean, we've talked about it, and he's like, eh, you know, and he'd kind of pat us on the head, you know. That's okay for you. When I left being a lawyer and and came over uh, to become the pastor of this church, uh, I think he was hoping that that was more or less like a fever, you know. Like, you've got an infection, Tom, and it just needs to run its course. And if I could give you a shot to cure you of this, I I would do that. I mean, he was very kind about it, guys. He didn't give me a hard time or anything. But, you know, there was clearly a, you guys are really off the deep end and you've gone a little crazy here. The last six years of his life, he had a disease called dysautonomia. It affects your autonomic nervous system, which basically controls everything that you don't consciously control. So you breathe, you know, you don't think about it. You digest your food, you don't think about it, your blood pressure is adjusted as you rise and sit down, you don't think about those things, but it deteriorates down to the place where it's, you know, it's not pretty. 
And for the last six months of his life, he was in bed. But over the last six years, there were several moments where we get the call from his wife, Beth's stepmom. They were married for 50 years. She took great care of him. And it was like, this is it. So you might want to come see your dad. So it's like, drop everything, go to North Carolina. You know, drop everything, go to Delray Beach. And everything meant everything. (laughs) So we just drop it all because we're going, holy cow, you know, he's going to pass into eternity here and he's not ready. And we'd go have the conversation with him and he, you know, like at death's door, not ready, not interested. Oh, that's nice for you. About a year ago, he had one of those events. We went up there and, and we were talking to him about this stuff. We said, do you even believe in God? He goes, oh, there's a God. We about fell out of our chairs. That was a new statement. And we were like, well, what do you mean? There's a God. He goes, well, there has to be. He goes, look at the human body. Look at the complexity of the universe. I mean, all of this study of physics had drawn him to the conclusion irresistibly that some intelligent being had to create and design all of this stuff. It just couldn't happen on its own. And we said, well, good news. There's a God. We agree on that. I mean, don't you think you should prepare to meet him? And he said, I'm never going to meet him. So what do you mean? He's like, good grief. Think of all of the people that have ever lived. Like, what are the odds that he's going to meet with me? We said, well, it's a little bit different with him. You see, he's not finite like I am. Like, if if all the people who ever lived needed to make an appointment to see me, okay, yeah, maybe you're right. Like, this is going to be a long line. 100 million years from now, I'll give you five minutes. That's all I got. But what if he's infinite and he can meet with everybody at the same time? He said, well, then that's the way it is, I guess. Then I'll meet him. No fear. So if you looked at him just with the eyes of your head, it's like, man, there is no hope for this guy. But if you look at him with the eyes of your heart, You keep praying, you keep believing, you keep preaching, because there's always hope. See, through the lens of who God is and who we are in Him and the power of prayer and all of these different things, my wife prayed for 38 years for her dad. Think about that. Through that lens, there's always hope. So December 23, so a month and three days ago, we get another one of these calls. And, you know, it's December 23, so... If they're interrupting us now, this must be severe. Your dad had a bad night. Why don't you come up? What we didn't know is that he woke up asking for Beth that day. So she goes up there. She walks in the room. Immediately she knows this is actually it. Like, there's no coming back from this one. You're not going to bounce back. You're not going to recover. The Christian caretaker who's been working in their house, praying for him for six months, sees a moment, takes my daughter Haley, brings her out of the room, shuts the door, leaves Beth in there with her dad alone and says, now. (laughs) And they went out and prayed. (laughs) And Beth said, Dad, this is it. You're going to meet Jesus today. This is your day and you're not ready. And here's what the gospel is. Will you pray to receive Christ as your Savior and have him forgive you of your sin, fill you with his spirit, and prepare you for the one that you will meet very shortly? And he said, okay. And she remained conscious, (laughs) led him in that prayer, and he died an hour and a half later. True story. And I know that not everybody's story ends that way. We need to own that too. 
I mean, I heard a bunch of ones today that did end that way, but those are the only folks who come up to talk to you afterwards. They're like, yeah, I had that same experience. The ones who were walking away going, I didn't have that experience. You don't get that conversation. But the point is, if we look at people, if we look at circumstances, if we look at situations, if we look at life, if we look at our lives, if we look at all of these things and ourselves with just the eyes of our head, man, oftentimes there's no hope. But as we look through the lens of the gospel, of who God is, of who we are in Him, of all the possibilities, there's always hope. Paul says, look, I am praying that God enlightens the eyes of your heart so that you may know what the hope is to which He has called you. And when you look in the mirror then and you look at your life and all of your failures and the state that you're in and you're tempted to go, no hope, there's hope. Or others or suffering, or pain, or disease, or tragedy, or death. He's like, look, there are two pairs of eyes through which you can look in the world. These eyes and these eyes. And they see things differently. And the eyes of the heart are the ones to pay attention to. So the first thing that Paul wants us to see with the eyes of our hearts is the hope to which God has called us. But the second thing is the worth and value that God places on us. And I say that because Paul continues verse 18 by talking about the riches of his, which is the key word, glorious inheritance in the saints. And I say that's the key word because what Paul's talking about here is not the glorious inheritance that we the saints have in God. He talked about that last week. What he's talking about here is the glorious inheritance that God has in us who are his saints. And when you just look at yourself or each other or whatever with the eyes of your head, it's kind of hard to get your mind around that, you know? I mean, you look at yourself and you go, ah, you know, I do some good things and I'm a pretty good dude and all that, but saints seems a little extreme. Glorious inheritance of God? I mean, you know, I don't have a bad self-image or anything, but, but man... And yet Paul's going, yeah, but that's, that's the wrong way to look at it. So you've got to look at it with the eyes of your heart that, that see you through the life and suffering and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf. That see you as God sees you, which is what? As God sees Jesus. In which case you're a saint. And you are part of the glorious inheritance of God. The third thing that Paul wants us to see with the eyes of our hearts is the power that lives within us. And I want you to notice how he describes this power. In verse 19, he says, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the workings of his great might, that he worked in Christ when? When he created the heavens and the earth? No, it's not the example that he gives. When he raised Christ from the dead, which is kind of interesting because if I was writing this, and I'm thankful that I wasn't, I probably would have gone creation of the heavens and the earth, and mostly because I can't resist, you know, because then I could show you pictures, and I've got this, and it'd be fun, and it's amazing, and it is impressive. I'd have shown you the earth and the solar system and the galaxies and all that stuff and gone, look at the immensity of all of this. Look at the complexity of all of this. Look at the beauty of all of this and know that the Spirit of God who created all of this lives in you through faith in Jesus. And I would have been right. That's power. And Paul's like, look, I could have gone that route, but I decided to be more personal. A little bit more hopeful, more poignant. So instead of talking about how God can bring good things out of nothing, 
I decided to talk about how God can bring good things out of bad things, beautiful things out of ugly things, new things out of old and decaying things, ordered things out of things that are chaotic, full things out of that which is otherwise empty, living things out of dust, ashes, out of that which has died. And that is, in fact, much better. Because as we look at ourselves and others and as we look around, I mean, there are some beautiful things, guys, and those things are amazing and they're encouraging, and I thank God for every single one of them, and I enjoy them fully. But there are also those other things. There are the bad things and the ugly things and the dead things and the old things and the decaying things and the empty things and and all of these other things. And when we pile those things up against ourselves and look at just ourselves, we realize, okay, left to myself, I am powerless against this stuff in me, in you, and everywhere else. And Paul's going, yeah, but you're looking with the wrong pair of eyes. Like if if you just look with the eyes of your head, you're right. But if you look at this, with the eyes of your heart. I mean, first of all, you're going to see that you're not left to yourself and that the power that conquered the grave lives in you by the power of the Spirit of God. And then the last thing that Paul wants us to see with the eyes of our hearts is Jesus. And I want you to see how he describes Jesus because he describes Jesus in such a way as to leave us with no way of saying, hey, you know what, that sounds like somebody that I can co-opt into my life, you know, just and sort of fit in there where I think he fits. I mean, it just does not work that way. He says that God raised Christ from the dead and then seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority on the throne of the universe, far above all power and dominion, he says, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And then he says, and he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, which is a reference to the practice of ancient Near Eastern kings who used to take like the emblems, you know, the images, the icon, if you will, of their enemies, and then they would put them inside of their sandals so that everywhere they walked, they were treading upon their enemies, which is pretty awesome, isn't it? I walk upon my enemies. It's crazy, man. They had a footstool of their thrones, and they would sit, and they put their feet, and on the footstool, they would have the emblems of their enemies. They sit on a throne with their feet upon their enemies. Paul says, look, it's not just the enemies that are under the feet of Jesus. It's everything. It's everyone. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. And here's the deal. When you see him for who he really is and surrender to him, then he fills you with the fullness. It's a remarkable thought. You know, we fret over our kids. Every parent frets over their kids. I don't care how old the kid is. The kid's like 50. You're still fretting. On some level, aren't you? I mean, it's it, like it never ends. I'm sorry to depress you if your child is three. You're like, what? What do you mean it never ends? They do move out at some point, hopefully, okay? But really, and you always think you have the right plan for them. You know, oh, this person needs to do this, and they need to stop doing that, and they need to start hanging out with these people, and they need to stop hanging out with them, and they need to enroll in this, and they need to do that, and exercise, and this and that, and the other thing. And if they would just do these things, it would fix their life. And look, if they would employ the greater wisdom that you have for living, it really would be helpful, But do you know what they really need? Because Paul doesn't pray for any of that. They need spiritual sight. They need to see Jesus 
for who he really is. And then seeing him to humble themselves before him and to repent, to surrender, and to be filled with his fullness. We fret over our husbands and wives. No elbowing right now, okay? That's just going to be a problem, okay? But we do, and we all have the plan that would fix this other person. Somebody said amen. She's here by herself. But we do. We think, well, if he would just do this, if she would just do that, if they'd stop doing this, if they'd start doing this, if they'd talk differently to me, and this, and look, it all might help. But you know what your spouse really needs? To see Jesus. To humble himself or herself. To repent. To surrender to the one who was on the throne of the universe, guys. And to be filled with his fullness. Okay, I left us for last. We fret over ourselves. We create all kinds of New Year's resolutions. I want to ask you if they're still working for you. I'm doubtful, okay? It's the 26th. We enroll in programs, programs in church, programs outside of church, exercise, pro- you know, all, I mean, we, we get ourselves involved in all of these different things. And then when all of these different things perhaps don't work for us, what do we do? We blame the program. And look, it's not that God doesn't use programs. And some programs are, in fact, more wisely constructed than other programs and therefore more helpful. I get it. But the heart work precedes the hard work. It's the first work. And Paul's like, look, I hope you find a good program. But you need to see Jesus for who he is. And acknowledge him as such by humbling yourself and repenting by surrendering your life to him and by opening up and allowing him to fill you with his fullness. That's step number one. Changing the metaphor for a second from sight to taste. David in Psalm 34 verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I hope this doesn't sound weird, but like when I read that, I thought of my favorite ice cream. Just stay with me for a second. Hopefully it will make sense. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I'm not going to tell you what it is because then there'll be a run on it in Publix, and so I'm selfish that way. And you already have yours, so you don't need to try mine, so we're good. But, but I thought, you know, like I could describe my favorite ice cream to you, so I'm going to try, and you'll figure it out what it is, and just leave it if it's the last one, okay? But I can tell you how creamy it is, and I can tell you how rich it is, and I can tell you how chocolatey it is, and how the chocolate ice cream is sweet and cold and cool and refreshing, and it's perfectly blended, like with just the right amount of salty peanut butter, like it is a marriage made in heaven. It's the nectar of the gods. It's ambrosia. It's amazing. I need a program. Okay, so here's the deal. I can explain all of this to you in tantalizing detail, or I can invite you to my house, make you a bowl, hand it to you, and say, hey, just try it. Here, taste. And then see. It's really amazing. What is Paul doing with all of this? He's doing that. The whole of it's an invitation. He's saying chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, inheritance, language, prayer, hope, value, my goodness. And then Jesus. He's coming to us with a vision of Jesus and he's saying, look, 
I want you to see him for yourself. I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. And when you do, you'll be glad you did. And it looks like humbling yourself. It looks like repenting. It looks like saying, okay, here I am, all of me. Surrender and being filled with his fullness. He is not someone you can co-opt into your life and, you know, get some advice from every once in a while and then decide what you want to do with it. I don't know. When you see him, you realize, no, no, he's going to co-opt you into his life. And that's the best possible arrangement for all of us. So as we enter into a time of reflection, I want to remind you that you have a prayer card on your seat. And if you kind of want to use that, you can, you can do that. We have people who take the prayer card and then they write on the prayer card and they write a prayer or they write a praise or they write a thought. If you're interested in like getting some information, you can turn it over and put that on there and we can contact you and all of that. Um, but it's a good time to do this as we reflect over, you know, what is the Lord saying here? You can write down what you feel like the Lord is saying to you and you can put it in a box on the way out the door. Or you can take it home with you. And then meditate on that this afternoon, whatever you think would be best. And I want to remind you that we have a prayer team as well, people who make themselves available to you in the back and on the walls as well at some point. And, and if you just want to go pray with somebody, it's a great thing to do. But I want to close with these questions, so just reflect on this. Question number one, what hopeless person, circumstance, relationship, or situation do you need to start looking at through the eyes of your heart? Because with the eyes of your head, it doesn't look too hopeful. Paul's like, you know, you have another set of eyes. It's the eyes of faith. It's the eyes of the possibilities of God. Secondly, how do you view yourself and, for that matter, other people and your own worth and value? Chosen, adopted. Redeemed, forgiven, inheritance. It's remarkable the value that God puts on you. Thirdly, who or what do you feel powerless against? Because the same power that conquered the grave, if you're a believer in Jesus, lives in you. And then lastly, have you surrendered to Jesus? Have you taken that step? And if that's just something you haven't done or you're not ready to do yet, that's why we have Alpha on Thursday nights. Love, love to have you join us Thursday at 7 in the attic on the north side of Bethany Christian School, second floor. You'll see all the flags and stuff. Just come. You can register online or you can just show up if you need to. But, but we'd love to have you or it's something that you could talk with us about after the service or pray with one of our prayer team members about uh, at the end of this service as well. But have you surrendered your heart to King Jesus because the heart work is the first work that needs to happen, okay? All right, can I have you guys stand? We're going to pray together and close in a minute in worship. Father, we are so thankful that you love us. God, that we see your love expressed in Jesus. Lord, you have held no part of you back from us, and for that we praise you. You have given to us the fullness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Come to live and come to suffer and come to die for our guilt that we might receive his innocence. 
and you raised him from the dead, which is not too tall a task for you. To proclaim life, abundant and eternal to us, and to give us hope. God, help us to look at ourselves, at each other, at our circumstances and situations, the people we know, the people we love. I pray that you would help us to look at life and the world through eyes that look through the lens of that, of who you are in your glory and of who you have made us to be. And so just take a minute where you're at and just talk uh, to the Lord about your hopeless cases or maybe just the biggie. Confess that to him and ask him to give you the eyes of faith.